Well, good morning. Um, do you want to rewind to last week when I said, if it snows, I might cry? I'm kind of a prophet a little bit, right? So I'm just going to be real careful with what I stay up here and stay in my lane. Because I got a sunburn on Thursday, standing in the front of my house. And here we are today. But we're not going to complain, because the Mariners are undefeated. Yeah? Huh? It was a good week, huh? Okay, Jason, yeah? Okay, move forward. I, I, I'm getting it. I'm getting it. Um, some announcements that I have. Well, I, it was, hey, it was the story I saw. Yeah, I know. It was the story I was telling myself. I know. I'm super good at that, you guys. Super good. And if you don't know what we're talking about, take a listen a few weeks ago. What date was that, Jason? Oh, okay. He doesn't really know his material. <laughs> um, okay. Let's move on with why I'm here. It's to tell you about things that are going on around here and to ask for your help for a few, few things as well. Um, last week, we talked about the reality that we have a groundskeeping ministry that we need to get fired up because the grass is growing and the sun is going to come back. We just know it. And in faith, we're going to build a team so that we can knock that grass down and edge it and make things look like we live here, essentially. Um, and what we're hoping for is that a few of you would be willing to be on a team of people that would come in maybe once a month is when you would be on the schedule. And um, we have lawnmowers. We have the equipment here. We just need willing bodies. And it doesn't always have to be on a Saturday and take your weekend. It could be in an evening after work or just what might work for your schedule. Um, if you think you might be available to do that, would you reach out to us by texting grounds to the Brookview number? Or um, when you go to brookviewchurch.com and you click on contact, there's an online communication card and there's a little box that you can check for that. And we would love to get you moving forward, introduce you to the team leaders that are there and then connect you with other people that are hopefully going to be serving in that ministry. We have five, six, Trevor, is it true? Five. Five. Um, we need more. <laughs> so I'm begging. No, I'm not actually begging, but I'm okay. Now I'm moving on. Um, some of you know already that we partner with two groups in our community to help fight homelessness. Um, and it is actually by meeting them at poverty lines and get, not giving them a hand out, but a hand up. And Vision House, um, that's just a few miles down the road from us here, is incredible at providing housing for people, giving them wraparound support, and then sending them onto a trajectory to not go back to living on the streets. Really beautiful, Christ-centered work that they do. And we get the opportunity to help them to stock their residence store. And what happens is they get rent incentive for paying their rents on time, for coming to classes, that sort of thing. They get a certain number of um, items that they can grab from the residence store. And so we like to just kind of fill that up for them and help them with their mission of what they're doing a little bit. And then the other way that we partner is with the Nourishing Network, which is the Edmonds School District um, Foundation that actually identifies kids that are homeless or living 
with food insecurity, and it gets them weekend meals. Um, but what we do is we partner at a local elementary school. Like, literally, you could throw a rock if you're Jason. I can't. Jason was a pitcher, so he can throw a rock at the school. Um, it's called Cedar Way, and we go there, and we provide things like fresh produce, um, some of the more expensive items like diapers, um, feminine hygiene, that kind of stuff. If you would be willing to help us to get food to those families through the Nourishing Network as well as Vision House, um, you can sign up by texting this um, Vision or Cedar Way. You can also mark your online communication card for that as well. And so once a month, we essentially have a supply and food drive. And that's going to happen the Tuesday after Easter. And what you do is you just sign up through signup.com. You get a, lit, a little link to that. And, um, and then you can bring your stuff and put it on the side ramp over here during the week, or you can bring it into church with you on Sunday. And then we get that out to the places that they go on Tuesday when we, um, we show up at Cedar Way and to Vision House. So thank you in advance for all that you guys are doing. Um, it is incredible. I know a few of you have reached out and said, hey, I can't really like go and purchase anything this month. Is there a way that I can donate? And you can. Um, through Brookview's online giving platform, there's a little drop-down box, and it will say to local missions, and that goes to Vision House and to Cedar Way. So um, if you can help with that, we would just so love it. You might notice once a month you walk into church, and the lobby is full of diapers and food and um, all sorts of different things, and that's what's going on when you see that. Um, it's pretty cool to get to celebrate that together. Next Sunday, you guys, it's Easter. Can you believe it? I know. The time is flying. We get to be together in person. I just remember, you know, the early COVID Easter where it was like, we're not together at all. This is so bizarre, but we get to be together. Um, and we have been going back and forth and back and forth about, do we have two services or do we have one service? Are we going to be able to get everybody in? And we have decided to do one service at 1030 a.m., one thing that we would love from you as you're inviting guests to come with you, would you come a little bit early? That will help us to get settled, to get more chairs set up if we need them, to push people forward, put people in gaps, that sort of thing would be a huge blessing so that those are the, that are bringing guests here can feel fully welcomed and not like, oh, there's no place to be and it's chaotic. So that will, that will really help us if you come a little bit early, about five minutes early, would just be a huge, huge gift. Um, so we're excited for Easter. It is going to be a beautiful morning to celebrate um, the reason for the hope that we have in Jesus. Um, and then two weeks after, so one week after Easter, two weeks from now, we get to gather together to celebrate love lived here. And for those of you that have been with us for a while, Three years ago, we began a Love Lived Here campaign, and the idea behind that was to be able to put a down payment to purchase this building, to be able to hire additional staff, and then to be able to move forward in ministry as well as take care of our building. And you've seen the transformations around here. Um, we went from a barn yet red building to white. Um, we got new carpets. I mean, it's just been a really cool thing. And we don't want to just be like, oh, well, that was three years ago. People gave and sacrificed for three years and pledged amounts. And that was over, 
over starting in March or April, depending on when you started your giving. And we just want to pause and reflect on that, to celebrate it, to praise God for the work that he's done and how he has been alive and active and moving among us in this season of who knew? Who knew that we would just be rocking and rolling and we're doing Love Lift here. This is so awesome. Let's go. Now you can't meet together. But we have watched God's movement among us and his story is present and it's alive and we want to share some of those things with you and so we invite you to come and to celebrate that that is not just for Brookview people it's not just for people who were a part of the giving it is for all of us to sit and talk about the story of God among us so please come mark your calendars for that I did mention that online communication card, and we love it when you guys fill that out. We love it when you fill it out when you're watching from home as well. Um, And so we look forward to hearing from you as you respond to anything, write comments, prayer requests. We have teams of people that pray for you throughout the week. Um, That's it. week does that make more sense today than it did last week (laughs) amen you guys today is a glorious day the mariners are in first place let's go let us go we've been deprived of joy for a long time true to the blue whatever that means true to the blue i mean stick with us even when we suck for 20 years that's what that means let's go first place baby Today I want us to think about greatness a little bit, and I, I want to begin by asking you guys to think, uh, just to think about something, you know, this is rhetorical. Are you great? Like, are you elite level, world class great at something, anything? Seriously, like, are, are you, are you, are, are you like great? Are you truly great? Like, what are you truly elite at? Like, maybe like world class. Are you truly great at something? Now, some of you may be. Some of you may be, and that is, that's awesome for you. I'm so happy for you. (laughs) But as I age, I'm realizing more and more, I'm not that great. Like, my favorite movie growing up was, was called The Natural. It's about a baseball player. Can you imagine? <laughs> it's about a baseball player whose, whose career is just derailed by, like, life. But he fights his way back after decades, and he has one magical season. 
And so I watched that movie over and over and over and over as a kid because my dream was to be a great baseball player. And that movie served to just like pour jet fuel on the fire of my dream. So there was this iconic line from that movie that just resonated with 12-year-old Jason. The main character gets reunited with the love of his life from childhood, and he's talking about how disappointed he is with his life and with his career, how his career got completely derailed by circumstances not his doing. So he's having this one great season, but it's obviously going to be his last and he says, he says to the, the love of his life that he grew up with, like the neighbor girl, he says, he says, I could have been better. I, I could have broke every record in the book. And here's the iconic line. She's like, well, what then? Like, so what? He's, he, and his, here comes the iconic line. He says, and then when I walked down the street, people would have looked and they would have said, there goes Roy Hobbs, the best there ever was in this game. Now, as a 12-year-old, that line, you guys, it gave me chills. I was like, whoo, because that's it. That, that's it. I want people to say one day, there goes Jason Huguenin, the best baseball player there ever was. You're like, you didn't lack for confidence. No. I didn't. I really believed that I could be. You know why? I was the most feared pitcher in all of Muckleteal Little League. <laughs> I was a big fish in a little pond. Um, but as I grew, I started swimming in the ocean, playing against like the best of the best of the best from all over the West Coast. And I got a serious reality check. And then I got hurt. And then it was over. And so the more I experienced life, the more I realized, you know what? I'm ordinary. And over the last few years, Jen and I have, uh, we've read a bit about parenting. And we came, we came across something not that long ago that really hit me. It was a child psychologist that was saying that today's parenting style is creating something kind of unique. We've, we, we're, 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 we've taught our children like we are taught to tell our children that they're great. We're, we're taught to tell them that they are like the most talented and the smartest and they're, they're like really, really gifted. We're taught to tell our kids that there are no limits for them, that they can do anything, that they can become anything they want. But this psychologist said there's a shadow side to that parenting style. Because if kids can become anything they want, if, if all of them have it in them to become great, like world-class, elite great, then if their expectation is to be great, what happens if they discover that they're kind of ordinary? Like if they get out of Muckleteal Little League and they realize there are freakish pitchers all over the place and they aren't that special. What happens when they hit reality? Like, how do they handle that? And this might be why so many millennials are living in their parents' basement, right? They haven't been able to find the thing that they're great at. And since they have to be great at something, since life is not good, unless you're like, great, you're like the best, you're elite. If the whole point of life is to be great, then they're still trying. They're still searching for that thing. They're trying to find their passion. 
right? In the meantime, what's going on internally is they're wondering if they, if they might just be like an abject failure. Very few people ever attain like world-class greatness, which means, you guys, can we be honest? A lot of us are destined to be kind of ordinary. And here's what I'll tell you. At, as I age, I'm becoming more and more comfortable with that for myself. And, and as a person that follows Jesus, I'm actually finding encouragement these days because when I look at the story of the Bible, God uses very ordinary people to do very powerful things. So the title of this message today is super inspiring. It's called Powerfully Ordinary. Doesn't it just give you chills? <laughs> Last week we talked about Ezekiel's uh, vision of the river of life, this river that is flowing out from the temple of God. And what begins as this light little trickle down the steps of the temple builds into, as it goes along further and further, it builds into this raging river. And everywhere that river flows, life comes bursting forth. We are invited to get into the river and be healed. And we are invited to become a part of that river and bring healing. But our ability to bring healing is less about our giftedness and our talent. And it's a whole lot more about having encountered the healer ourselves. So today I just want to speak to those of you that you're, you're sitting here and you're going, I'm not great, pretty ordinary. Because the message of the Bible is that through Jesus, whoever wants it can become powerfully ordinary. So I want to launch into this by thinking about Jesus, and I want to think about his ministry. Let's look at the beginning of his ministry. This is Luke chapter 3. This is like, like very ordinary people. Jesus begins by being baptized. So here we go. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. It says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now there's a whole lot in those two verses that we could talk about, but I want us to just focus on one thing. Luke says that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. Why the bird reference? Like, it's, what's happening? Is Luke getting all poetic? Well, that's not really Luke's style anywhere else. Luke was a doctor. He's more of a technician, more of a historian than he is a poet. And in addition to that, all four Gospels use the exact same phrase to describe this moment, that the Spirit descended like a dove. So think about this. What are the odds that all four Gospel writers would independently choose the same imagery the same like poetic imagery. Something's going on here. And the magnitude of it, I think, is breathtaking. But for us to feel it, we have to hear it like ancient Jewish readers did. And so this is gonna get, you guys, this is gonna get technical for just a second. Okay, hang, hang in there, because I'm hoping that on the other side of it, it's gonna be really cool. Um, last week, we looked at the very first words of the Bible. This is Genesis chapter one, verses one and two. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. About 500 years or so before Jesus, Israel was living in exile. They had been removed, forcibly removed from their homeland, traveled 700 miles on foot toward the east to live as slaves in Babylon. The pre, like the world preeminent superpower of the day. Now, that period of, of exile, of foreign slavery, lasted 70 years. So, a few generations of Jewish children were born in Babylon and they grew up speaking a different language, Aramaic. Aramaic was the language of Babylon at that time. So, they didn't speak their native language of Hebrew, where they had come from. But the rabbis wanted the younger generations to be able to read the scriptures and know the scriptures. So they translated the Jewish scriptures from Hebrew into Aramaic, the language of Babylon, and they called the translation the Targum. Now, by the time of Jesus, most Jews in Israel still spoke Aramaic as their primary language. Like Hebrew was something that was like the language of the scholars or somebody was studying the scriptures, they might learn a little bit of Hebrew. But common Jewish people spoke Aramaic. Aramaic. Jesus, this means that Jesus, being the son of Joseph and Mary, very common people, probably grew up reading from the Targum. And so did his disciples who wrote the Gospels. Okay, that's the technical part. We're almost there. So if you read Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 from the Targum, there's a little phrase that's added that isn't in the Hebrew. So Here's what, it, here's what it sounded like from the Targum, okay? It read like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And here's the addition, like a dove. So back to Jesus' baptism. Can you guys, can you feel what Luke is doing? He's saying the very same Spirit that hovered over all creation has now come to rest permanently on this man, Jesus. Okay, let's skip ahead to a scene in the next chapter in Luke 4. Jesus has now been teaching, and he's been doing miracles, and there's this growing buzz, and he goes to synagogue on the Sabbath, and he's invited to teach. And there's this building anticipation as he stands, and he asks for the scroll of Isaiah so that he can read it publicly and then teach on it. And here's, so here's what he reads. He reads this out loud. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to pro- proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, which was the teaching posture of a rabbi when they got really serious. And it says, The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Yeah, they were. And he began by saying to them, this is how he began the sermon, explaining that scripture. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So in this moment, Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. And it's an astounding claim. But what's more astounding is the way that his life actually backed up the claim. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Think about the way Jesus did that. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, 
and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus is baptized. The Spirit descends on him like a dove in Luke 3. And then the verses that follow, Luke just will not let up on the Spirit's role in Jesus' ministry. So let's look at this theme as it kind of works its way through Luke chapter 4. Verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted. Then after this episode in the wilderness, Luke says, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. He's healing, he's teaching, and, this, and that leads to him standing in the synagogue. And he says, he begins, this, he begins with, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. You guys, Luke is beating the same drum again and again and again to say the power displayed through Jesus came when the Spirit rested on Jesus. It all began when the Spirit descended on him like a dove. Have you ever wondered, now come on, have you ever wondered, like, how on earth did Jesus do what he did? How did a human being walking around the earth perform miracle after miracle after miracle? Like, where did his power come from? How was he able to do it? Well, there are, there are kind of two main ways that believers understand the miracles of Jesus. And the first is, just proof that Jesus was God, right? It's just proof, proof Jesus was God. And that's probably the belief that most of us carry. It has been the, the most common approach for the last 300 years or so. Let me explain, though, where the origins of that idea being so prominent come from. In the 18th century, before the Enlightenment, the average person had a much more spiritual worldview than people commonly do today. For instance, people would say something like, look, the sun is coming up. Look, God has made another day. Right? But post-enlightenment, there's this explosion of scientific discovery, and it's like, well, actually, the sun rises because the earth is spinning at approximately 1,000 miles per hour and is revolving around the sun like a star at approximately 67,000 miles per hour, you are nothing but a speck on a ball of matter that happens to be rotating around this one star in a massive expanse we call the universe, and that's why the sun rises this morning. So through the Enlightenment, a much more secular worldview was born, and with it came the terminology of natural and supernatural. Natural meaning governed by the laws of science. Supernatural meaning transcending the laws of science. Did you know you, you will not find those terms in like pre-enlightenment dictionaries? They emerged out of the enlightenment as a way to describe new discoveries that were, people were making in the scientific world. So in the, like in the age of emerging secular worldview, you started to hear things from people like, oh, well, I don't believe in the supernatural. And with that, belief in the biblical God began to be thrown out. And suddenly, people began to say, look, even if there is a God, and I don't really believe that there is, but even if there is a God, he's probably not involved in human life. 
Even if God created the world, he's, he's probably just moved on to other projects and left this thing to run now by natural scientific laws. So suddenly, this viewpoint called deism, or the divine watchmaker theory, became like this middle ground between Christianity and atheism. And in those days, uh, some of you know this story, a very famous deist, Thomas Jefferson, cut the miracle stories out of his Bible, keeping the principles of morality, but stripping the story of all of its personality and power. There's, there's just this wave of this new kind of thinking. So, so, guys, guess what happened? Christians started freaking out, as, let's be honest, they tend to do. Right? And they're just, they're going nuts. They're like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. You can't just throw out the miracle stories. Because the miracle stories are proof that Jesus was God. So in the 18th century, this, ideal, this idea became quite prominent. Jesus was able to do what he did because he was the Son of God. And you guys, there's some truth to that. Like, I, I don't want to throw that out totally. So if you're sitting here, you're listening to this, and you're starting to freak out inside, let me just re, re, reassure you. I, I believe that Jesus was the Messiah. I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And I believe that his miracles were confirmation to, to a degree of his identity. But the idea that the only reason Jesus could do miracles is that he was God, that comes with all kinds of problems. The most obvious of which is, you guys, all sorts of people work miracles in the Bible. Right? It's not just Jesus. I mean, Moses did the whole ten plagues thing. That was pretty awesome. He parted the Red Sea. And then he enabled the whole nation of Israel to drink in the, in the desert by making pure Dasani water flow out of a rock. <laughs> but, but Moses never claimed to be the Messiah. Elijah, he healed the sick. He fed the multitudes. He, he even raised a child from the dead. But Elijah never claimed to be the Messiah. Then you just, the list could just keep on going. It goes on after Jesus. In the early church, all sorts of people went around performing miracles, but none of them claimed to be the Messiah. The idea that Jesus did miracles simply because he was God, it's a highly reactionary position born out of a defense against deism. And it's only been the prominent view for about 300 years or so. The claim of Luke and the other gospel writers seems to go more like this. The miracles of Jesus were signs of the inbreaking kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God like? It's like good news for the poor. It's like freedom for the oppressed. It's like sight for the blind. It's like healing for the sick. It's like salvation for the lost. Luke wants us to see that the long-awaited kingdom of God is now here, and it has been ushered in to, to our world through the king, the anointed one, Jesus. So back to, our, back to our question. How on earth did Jesus do what he did? Well, Luke wants us to know that it was by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, prior to his baptism, Jesus lived for 30 years and he did not teach or do miracles. This is why when all of this stuff starts happening, his own siblings, his brothers and his sisters are like, whoa, what the heck, bro? 
Jesus, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? They're offended by it. They're concerned about it. Why? Because it's not like they grew up watching him do this stuff every day. This is all brand new. And it all began after he was anointed by the Spirit like a dove. Look at how Peter explained what happened with Jesus. This is Acts chapter 10. Peter says, You know what has happened through the pro- throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached? How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing. Now, here's why, you guys... Here's why I've gone on and on and on. Some of you are like, I get it, move on. Here's why I've gone on and on and on with this. Okay, it's because what started with Jesus does not stop with Jesus. The Holy Spirit is still active. Jesus' life is just like the ultimate example. It's like this amazing example. It's like this is what it looks like when someone gives themselves over completely to the Holy Spirit. This is what it looks like when the Spirit fully makes his home in someone. Home is a, home's a powerful word. Home's a powerful place. Because at home, you can like be fully yourself. Yes? Yes, like... Like when you go over to an acquaintance's house for dinner, it might be like really nice. But it's hard to be completely yourself. When you're home and you make your own dinner, you can just chill. You can just feel the freedom to be completely yourself. I mean, think about all the things that that you do at home that you would not do anywhere else. Like, You can lounge in your pajamas and not worry about your hair. We're keeping this really clean. (laughs) You can raid the fridge and just get whatever you want, right? So that's like the life of Jesus for the Holy Spirit. It's like a home. It's It's a living, breathing home. And this is the invitation of Jesus to make ourselves a home for him through the Holy Spirit to to make our life more and more home for the Holy Spirit, a home for the Father and for Jesus and for the Spirit. In, In John chapter 14 and 15, following the Last Supper, Jesus explains that he's going away. But because the Spirit will be poured out like a river, We can have even greater community with the Father and the Son. Jesus is saying to his disciples, like, you're going to be closer to me when I'm gone. And they're like, what? He's like, I'm telling you, trust me. You're going to feel closer to me. You're going to be wiser. You're going to be stronger when I'm gone. And here's how he explains it. Notice the metaphor here. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Jesus says some people will become like a home for him through the Holy Spirit. That's what the rest of this whole talk that he's giving is all about. It's about the Spirit. In the same way that Jesus became a perfect home for the Holy Spirit, it's possible for us to become a home for him through the Holy Spirit. We just have to make space. We just have to give permission. We just have to invite the Spirit. 
And you guys, people have been doing this for 2,000 years, and I've watched you guys do this again and again and again, and beautiful stuff is pouring into you, and beautiful stuff is pouring out of you. Dr. Luke went on to write a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. What do we, what do we call the sequel? Acts. That's uh, A-C-T-S. It's not A-X-E. It's kind of a violent name for a book. Acts. So Acts is short for Acts of the Apostles. But people have also said, you know, it really should be short for Acts of the Holy Spirit. But it's Acts of the Apostles. And here's how Luke begins the sequel. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 1. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, so the, the book of Luke was written to a guy named Theophilus. It was to explain Jesus to this guy named Theophilus. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So this book, the sequel, will be all about what Jesus continued to do and to teach. Only this book is not about the life of Jesus. It's about the lives of his followers continuing to do all that he started. In the next chapter, Acts 2, the Spirit descends once again and it rests on them. It says, They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And then what happens from there? Craziness. I mean, the book of Acts is is just ordinary people doing the stuff that Jesus did. The book of Acts is, is how the kingdom of God flowed like a river after Jesus. It covers approximately three, the three decades right after Jesus was gone, but it looks a whole lot like the three-year ministry of Jesus. Peter heals a lame beggar and then preaches about Jesus in the kingdom. Paul casts a demon out of an exploited, demon-possessed girl. The church breaks down ethnic barriers that had stood for centuries, and they serve food daily to the poorest of the poor and the neediest of people. To summarize, it's like... The good, it was like good news for the poor. It was like freedom for the oppressed, sight for the blind, healing for the sick, and salvation for the lost. The supernatural ministry of Jesus was so common among them that, that Luke, it's like he got tired of writing down the specifics and, he just, and all the details. And he's just like, really cool stuff happened. <laughs> he just got like worn out. Maybe, maybe he was running out of papyrus or whatever. But he just starts to use these like sweeping statements of what's happening, like Acts chapter 2. Check this out. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Acts chapter 4. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Acts chapter 5. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. How were these people doing these things? through the same spirit that had anointed Jesus. These were ordinary people filled with the spirit of Jesus doing the stuff of Jesus. Now, if you turn like to the last page of the book of Acts, you, you discover that it's really weird because it has no ending. It, it's like one of those indie films that you're watching and you're following the story and you're like, hey, I can't wait to see how this wraps up. And then the credits just roll. And then you pretend that you loved it when you're having dinner with your friends later, right? It's, so this is it's like right in the middle of the story, and the thing just trails off. Why? Because what Luke is pointing out is the story is still being written. 
Like Luke wants us to know that, that the acts that he recorded for us, they continued to happen long after he stopped writing them down. He wants us to see that the Holy Spirit is very much still active in our world. So let's go back to the scene with Jesus after the Last Supper. Jesus is preparing the disciples for his leaving, and he says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. So who's gonna do even greater things than Jesus? Is it the extra spiritual super anointed apostles? Is it the the Christian pastors who get paid to do it? Come on. Is it the nuns and the monks who have forsaken the world and live isolated just studying scripture and praying? No, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, it's whoever. Whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. This week in my online life groups, we're talking about Ezekiel's vision, right, from last week. And, um, you know, this river of, of living water that just brings life wherever it goes. And someone in, in one of my groups, uh, I wouldn't want to call them out, but Phil, you're awesome. <laughs> someone in one of my groups that shall remain anonymous said, you know, I, I kind of think about the way water works. It just seeps and it just penetrates every space and every area. Now, he's got a rental property. It's like he's concerned about water, you know. <laughs> he's like, it just seeps and, and penetrates every space, every area. The only time that it doesn't is when it's like blocked by something. And I just thought, I was like, Phil, you're a genius. That is a powerful observation. Because the Spirit wants to work His way into every bit of us to heal us. And then to equip us to become a part of this this river so that we then can go out and and heal. But the Holy Spirit is is a gentleman. He's not going to force His way in. He will go everywhere that He isn't blocked by something like water in a rental property, except a much more positive connotation than that. <laughs> so, so what would it look like for a person to like have zero barriers for the Spirit? What would a person look like who had zero barriers for the Spirit? Well, they would look a lot like Jesus. Goodness and power all intertwined for the sake of others. You guys, when we are invited to become like Christ, this is the way. You you become a home for the Holy Spirit. And we go about removing any barriers that might get in the way for the Spirit to seep into every arena of our lives. Okay, so in the time that we have left, I just want to ask you this question. What might be in the way? What might be in the way? And what I want to do is I just want to name five barriers that I have seen a lot and experienced myself that I think can be present in us. And we could go on and on for hundreds. You don't want that. 
but I'll talk about five. And I'm gonna move through them really fast. And I just wanna say, not all of these will be for you. But here's what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping that the Spirit might just highlight maybe one or two of these for you as an invitation into greater healing, as an invitation into greater joy. Okay, here we go. One common barrier is being more interested in knowing than experiencing. Again, some Christian cultures, the most revered are the most educated, right? Have you seen this? Those who can quote chapter and verse and can use big theological words, they are, they are the spiritual giants. And if you come from like a family like that or a church background like that, it can be super tempting to define your spiritual maturity by what you know. The thing is, knowledge is not the same thing as experience. Right? I, I, I can read a thorough and well-written biography about the life of Jen Huguenin. It would be a far cry from being married to her. I'm in for the full adventure, babe. <laughs> C.S. Lewis once compared the role of theology to, to that of a map. So the idea is that if we want to go on a journey, like having a map is really important. Like, I don't know about you, have you, have you just ever thought about this? Like, I, what would I do without Waze or Google Maps? People used to, there were once were people that lived in that kind of way. So theology, it enables us to know where we're going, like a map. It helps us to stay on track. But having good theology is not the same thing as experiencing the trip. Yes? Like, I can look up how to get to Disneyland on Waze, and I can know all the turns that I should take, even in bad traffic, ways, outsmarting traffic together. <laughs> right? Theology matters. Like, if you don't have some sort of map, at least in your head, then you could, like, guys, you could plan a, a trip to Disneyland and end up, like, in North Dakota, where my family vacationed every other summer. <laughs> <laughs> God bless you from, from North Dakota, but you don't want that. <laughs> you guys, theology matters. Maps matter. They matter. On the other hand, knowing all the right turns and all of the fastest routes would be a really disappointing substitute for actually going to the happiest place on earth. I mean, like we've all known Christians who, guys, they know all the right answers, Right? And they're eager to tell you and, and show you that they know all the right answers. But they don't love people. They're angry. They're scared. They're judgmental. They're unloving. Right? Our, our goal at Brookview is, is a simple little two word phrase. What is it? Love lived. It, it, baby. It's it, okay. Our, our, our goal at Brookview is love lived. It's not truth known. Now, truth matters, but we have to be able to take what we know and eventually put it into practice. We have to experience it so that we can then live with joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control and faithfulness. We must experience this stuff where we actually live our lives, like with our families, with our spouses, with our children, with our mom and dad, with siblings, uh, extended family. We've got to experience it with our friends and, and our co-workers and, and, and our neighbors. We have to experience it through seasons of stress and disappointment and fear 
We have to experience it when we're wronged by somebody, right? When we're driving and some idiot cuts us off. Amen? See, what happens is if we turn knowledge into an idol that we worship, we will miss out on the kingdom life that God is wanting for us. So a, a second, okay, so first barrier, that's second barrier, is that we can let ourselves be disqualified by shame. Like maybe more than any word Jesus ever spoke, I think the one we struggle to believe is the word whoever. Whoever believes in me will do the work that I've been doing. So many of us are, we're, we're just like, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I must like, I love the sentiment, Jesus. But I, I, right now, I just got to work on me. Whoever. Yeah, but you don't really know me and you don't know my stuff. Whoever. And we count ourselves out of a story that when you think about it, is built on a foundation of moral disasters. Jesus is, you guys, Jesus is not afraid of empowering the disqualified. He's way more afraid of putting authority into the hands of those who have bought into the illusion that they're qualified. Just imagine if Peter was, was leading the early church, having not gone through the experience of being broken first. Do you remember what a jackass that guy was in the early gospels? You don't want him leading your church family. But he's broken, and he's humbled, and he learns about mercy and grace and love and kindness. You would not get that vibe in the early church without a broken Peter first. As I said last week, the thing that makes us candidates to impact our generation, it's not our gifting, it's not our talent, it's not our qualifications, it's not even our education or having it all together. The thing that enables us to impact our generation, the thing that people are looking for is our commonness, that we're like them. And that we have wounds like them. But we have met the one that heals. And we can point them to him. I mean, let me read again the, the words of Brennan Manning. I read these last week. But he writes, Anyone God uses significantly is always deeply wounded. We are, each and every one of us, insignificant people whom God has called and graced to use in a significant way. On the last day, Jesus will look us over not for medals or for honors, but for scars. It, just, it seems that in the kingdom of God, it is the powerfully healed that most often become the powerful healers. Now, I just took you down the grace road, and you're like, that feels wonderful. I'm going to go to the other side now, and you might dislike me. <laughs> because a third barrier for the Spirit is unrepentant sin. You guys, now, we all sin. Okay, we all sin. We all fall short. None of us is, is fully, fully like Jesus. None of us love like Jesus. None of us fully think like Jesus. But when I say unrepentant sin, I'm not just talking about falling short. I'm talking about a very deliberate sin that you fully intend to continue. Like many of you are battling and you're wrestling with, 
with sins, with addictions or anger management or anxiety or fear or judging others or lust, but you're working at it. You're working at it and you're, you're in partnership with God through the Holy Spirit to grow and to change and to become something new. Unrepentant sin means that your plan is just to continue a particular sin indefinitely. You aren't asking God to help you. You aren't working toward change. You aren't working to find a support or accountability or fellowship or other. And here's the thing. That kind of, that kind of thing is a big, fat barrier for the Holy Spirit. Like, how, how can the Holy Spirit feel at home in you if that's, if that's kind of the approach? Now, I just want to say, if that's you, God still loves you. God still loves you and Jesus still died for you. But you're missing what the Holy Spirit is trying to give you. Like, what if you were to talk to someone and get support and ask God for help? What if, what if God were to meet you then in a fresh way with fresh power? What if God were to empower you with strength that's beyond you and then use you in a more powerfully, more powerfully to, to heal and help others? If you want more of the Spirit, you have to become a home for him. So unrepentant sin can be a significant barrier. Okay, fourth barrier is being a critic instead of a participant. When it comes to church or to ministry or to serving the broken, you guys, it is so much easier to just sit on the sidelines critiquing what everyone else is doing. I have seen this again and again. People taking shots at those that are, that are doing the work. It's so easy to sit on the outside just judging and critiquing, evaluating. My gosh. When we first planted Brookview, I, I talked to a man who, he wanted more info um, for, about our church. And so we, we talked on the phone because he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm looking for a church. And he's like, I, was, you know, I heard about you guys and I was wondering if you might be a good fit. And I'm like, okay. And I had a lot of conversations like that. But this guy was interesting because he only had one question. Here was the question. What is your belief about the return of Jesus? Exactly. He had a very particular theology about the details surrounding end times. And amazingly, he could not find a single church that was getting it right. So I asked, well, how long has it been since you've had a church home? And I found his answer to be sadly ironic and just flat hypocritical. Because he loved Jesus and good theology so deeply, he had not engaged in Christian community for over a decade. For, for over 10 years, he sat on the sidelines critiquing the entire time, thinking himself superior to all of these other lame Christians. I later thought of that guy when I heard a famous quote from Teddy Roosevelt. Many of you have heard this. I love this. He said, it is not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, 
whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without error or shortcoming, but who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who knew neither victory nor defeat. You will never find a perfect church or a perfect community or a perfect ministry. Newsflash. If you join in the movement of Jesus, it will always be in partnership with very flawed people. And they will have flawed lives and they will have flawed ideas. But if you take always, if you just always take the posture of a critic, how in the world is the Holy Spirit supposed to move through you? I mean, there's, there's an old saying, even God can't steer a parked car. Right? Eventually, you have to get in the arena. You have to sweat it out. I just want to say, like, if, if your primary gift is to see everyone else's flaws you may not be as helpful as you think you are. <laughs> okay, two more. A fifth barrier is, this might be the last one. You know, I had to cut one of these because I'm going to be too long. This is the last one. There's not two more. A fifth barrier is just self-centered Spirituality. You know, Christianity becomes really ugly really fast when it's about my will, not God's. I think of the most atrocious things that have been done in the name of Jesus, and they are atrocious. I mean, think about things like the Crusades. Are you kidding me? You think about the hate and the injustice of the KKK with crosses everywhere. Are you kidding me? But that stuff only happens when God's heart is ignored. Human beings long for power and for wealth and status and control. And throughout history, human beings have been willing to use every means available to get them. And that includes religion. It includes Christianity, sadly. But whenever Christianity is, is used to gain power, wealth, status, and control, suddenly it isn't about God's will anymore at all. It isn't about God's kingdom. It becomes a human kingdom masquerading as Christianity. The early Christians, they actually looked like Jesus, laying down their lives for the kingdom. Hundreds of years later, many Christians looked a whole lot like the Roman Empire, Force, hate, anger, ambition, taking lives for their own kingdom, right? And lately, here's what's, here's what's crazy about this. I mean, we're all angry about that. But here's, here's what's crazy. I'm starting to see a little bit of that kind of darkness in myself. Because I've lived a lot of life with just sort of like clenched fists that refuse to welcome the Holy Spirit. And here's how I do it. I decide that I must have my life go a certain way. It must go a certain way. At, at the, I have a plan, I have a dream, and as far as I know, it would, it would honor God. So this dream and this plan of mine, I gotta have it. 
For, for my life to be good and for me to be happy, I have to have this thing. My will be done. And I start to try to bend the world into my own desire. And the more that I think and I operate that way, you guys, the darker I become. This is when I'm most tempted to lie and to manipulate and to mistreat. This is when I become passive-aggressive, or truth be told, aggressive-aggressive. This is when I'm depressed and anxious and controlling. This is when I'm a jerk. And these days, I'm starting to realize that I don't like who I am when I'm like that. I don't really enjoy life when I operate from that place. I'm realizing that, you know what, I've never been in control. I'm not in control. And you know what else? I don't need to be. My life can actually go 10,000 different directions. And God will still be with me. And there will be people around me that I can love and who, who may, may very well love me in return. So instead of living my life with clenched fists, I can, I can begin to live more with open hands. And you guys, this is what the earliest Christians did. They followed the example of the master, of Jesus. They followed the one who said, not my will, but yours be done. And that man, you guys, was the freest, most joy-filled man to ever live. He was free all the way to his death, even though his death was not the end. And it reminds me that mine won't be either. So maybe there's an invitation in, in one of these for you from the Spirit. Here's what I know. I'm really ordinary. But I can be powerfully ordinary. And so can you. The Spirit is available to anyone that's thirsty. So the more your life is a home for him, a place where he's welcome and he can be himself, the more you will see beauty and healing and power in your life. And so will those that are all around you that are desperate for that in their own lives. Amen? Amen. Father in heaven, I thank you for your grace and just your patience and perseverance. You just continue to seek after us. You continue to, to softly whisper to us that you're there and that, that, you want, that you want in. And none of us have completely, fully let you in. The, the water of the Spirit is not, is not touching every part of any of us. But I, I want it to. I want it for me. I want it for all of us. And so, God, would you, would you, would you make it happen? Would you help us to just increasingly identify the things in our lives that are in the way, that are blocking your Spirit's work and healing and power in us? Not only so that we can live with the fruits of the Spirit, but so that we can take the fruits of the Spirit to the world and to the people, to our children and our parents and our siblings and our coworkers and our friends and everywhere we go where people are desperate to encounter you. Spirit, come. Come and fill us. Amen.